we have three of our founding members here tonight, um, Tamar Dennis and Anastasia Jeffries and LaDrea White. We opened the school last two years ago um, in Western High School and um, with 126th grade girls, the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women opened um, in 2009 with 126th grade girls. Those girls are now our eighth graders and we are in our brand new home across the street from this fine institution uh, what, at what used to be the YWCA. And so um, I have been educating children now for going into my 13th year. I started out as an uh, English teacher at Walbrook High School. I taught there for eight years and I had an organization there called C, Sisters Expecting Excellence. And my motto was, if you can see it, you can be it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just about putting strong women in front of other girls, saying this is what you can do if you can see it, if you can touch it. And um, just, it was a, a, a young lady who, who still, I'm still very close to, she was a, uh, a student of mine, her name is Shannon Watson, and she said, do you love teaching or do you love girls or do you love both? And what do you really want to do? And, you know, children have that way of sort of helping you center yourself. And um, I said, I need to go further with this. I, I really love working with young women. And so um, put pen to paper, and I was actually writing a proposal to open up an all-girls middle school that would feed into Western High School. I am not from Baltimore, Maryland. I, I grew up not too far from here in Prince George's County. I just, when I moved to Baltimore, I found out about this poly and Western and city thing, and I learned that Western was under-enrolled, and that blew my mind. And so um, girls weren't selecting to go to Western. And so I said, well, let's start an all-girls middle school that would feed into Western at that time a wonderful philanthropist by the name of uh, Brenda Brown Weaver wanted to bring an all-girls school to Baltimore City that was not based on grades. She wanted a school that if you were a girl and you lived in Baltimore City and you wanted this opportunity for your child, then you can simply apply and your child get in. And, but she was very adamant, she is very adamant about having the model be six through 12. Mm -hmm. And so I said, wait a minute, we're talking the same thing. I can pull off my Western thing. She had the the money to make it happen and the power and uh, just the passion and so we, we came together and now we have Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women. Uh, we call ourselves Bliss and um, we are one of, I'm very proud to say, one of the highest performing middle schools in Baltimore City because of um, the hard work that we do across the street here at 128 West Franklin Street. Um, in terms of helping other schools I'm going to backtrack a little bit because it's funny, we, we, we started a new course this year for our eighth grade girls called MBS, which is Mind, Body, and Soul. And it's just a deeper sex ed course. Um, we didn't just want to talk about sex without talking about what's going on with yourself mentally and what's going on with yourself socially. And what's, we wanted to address the total girl, the wholeness of the girl. Um, and so we're getting into media. We're getting into what's going on with... Um, how you, the, the self-inflicting pain. And, and so the girls just finished a project where they had to do a vision board for themselves. Um, but it is sex ed, but it was, it was we were just, we, we were hitting this bump in the road where the girls were talking about them. They were, with the, with the film talked about in terms of self-objectifying um, themselves. It, at, and in the sixth grade, mm -hmm. in the seventh grade, um, in the eighth grade, and so we felt the need to go deeper with the mind, body, and soul, with the mind, body, and soul course uh, Plant Parenthood comes over and they do the sex ed piece. The girls love it and we're seeing the conversations are already 
starting about what are you seeing, looking at media with a critical eye. And so I don't know that it's ever going away, but I think it's power in teaching our young women how to look at it and how to identify it and how to address it. And I think that's what the, con what this, the class is doing. And so um, in terms of what other schools can do, um, I, I think a lot of work has to be done um, with, with what happens outside the classroom. So bringing in therapists to talk to parents about how you parent properly bringing in um, a school psychologist to sort of get to the nitty-gritty about what's going on in some of the minds. So it's a, it's a lot of work that has to be done that's outside the classroom to make what you need to happen in the classroom happen. I don't know. So it's a, you know, becoming more of a addressing the whole community. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, what happens in the street is going to happen in your schoolhouse. And so you have to figure out how you're going to address it in the schoolhouse properly because it's coming in there. Well, you're clearly making your women, young women, ambassadors. So that, that becomes, you know, it's kind of a get in where you fit in situation where where do you stand and what resources and what, what is your audience. And so, you know, you're doing your job handily by bringing these young women here and they're doing what they do um, in a way that's really powerful, but they're also giving a witness in, in, in your environment. You're providing that. But I want to go to um, Capri Smith next because this really connects in a really powerful way to the work you're doing, how you've made a choice to use your decades of experience working with domestic violence and sexual violence with women writ large. You've seen a lot in Baltimore. I mean, you started out on the east side in the police department, so you've seen all of it, um, but you, you've also had a commitment and a love, and you're, you're an incredibly patient um, person when it comes to that. But then you said, okay, I understand what's happening in the adult population. I want to also talk to these young people as well. So talk a little bit about what you've seen over the 20 years, and then also talk about the power of your model to reach young people, because you're working with young boys and young girls um, yes. around issues of violence and sexual violence. Absolutely. And again, thank you for this opportunity and, of course, for all the work you're doing in our community and to be alongside such greatness. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'll go, I'll take you guys back a few years. I was in the Eastern District. If you guys have seen The uh, Wire, the movie The Wire, you've seen an episode or two about some violent thing involving some type of drug and then some kid in the corner. Well, I've actually lived several of those moments in having to leave children in corners because CPS may not have been available, Child Protective Services, and they're left there hungry, confused, mistreated, right? So then I'll move you forward to a few years ago when I met a couple of 12 and 13-year-olds, not so much in a corner, but still as confused as unknowingly being abused and manipulated, but because their standards have been lowered so much by what their parents have, show, have shown them, by what the community shows them, and what our schools allow, what our leadership enables, we are still leaving them in a corner, I realized. I remember handling a, a rape case where um, we had taken a young lady in, into our interview room and we left her parents out front. That was the standard. You don't necessarily talk to a young person in the presence of their parents because they, you may not get all the information you need. So when I left the parents, they, you know, take care of my child. She's been through so much. Before this happened, she was a virgin. When I took her into the room, and had a conversation with this young child. It's not some magic that we do, it's just a conversation. 
I realized that she wasn't a virgin. She was actually very sexually active. And the day that she was sexually assaulted, she left her home. Her parents thought to go to school, but she actually played hooky to go be with her boyfriend. Unfortunately, when she got to her boyfriend's house, she not only had to have sex with him, but she had to have sex with him and all of his friends before she could leave. Yes, she was sexually assaulted. Yes, she was victimized. However, the level of understanding with her parents and the level of just a disconnection leads me a few years forward. So now here we are, and not only are our young people being exposed to so much sexual images and so much violence, and not only do they not have a clue about who they are, our adults don't necessarily have a clue about who they are. So how can we talk to them about how to make proper decisions if we don't know who we're speaking to, right? So how can we, the leaders of the community, tell the community how to help themselves and their young people if we ourselves don't have a clue about what's going on? I'll take you back to the film. Remember the moment where the, uh, it was coming on and you saw all of these different clips of young women dancing in bikinis and um, washing cars, we were probably very unmoved. But when the young lady spoke about her friend who cut herself, that probably struck an emotion. The, that emotion is the emotion we need to get back to because there are a lot of cutters, a lot of people with all types of disorders that we're not ignoring, but we are running away from because we don't know what else to do. Do you guys agree with me that we are, we're lacking information? This young lady said it so nicely. She said, she was four years old and they're running around the playground and they shouldn't be doing that. My question is, so what do you do with that? Do you spank them? Do you discipline them? Do you send them to their rooms? What, do you talk to them? What do you do with that? What, what do you say when you talk to them? And I'll pose this question to you guys. What would you say? When was the last time you drove past a group of young kids and you saw a teenage girl being mishandled and shook your head and kept driving? When was the last time you heard that B or that H were being used in the presence of you, not just your elders, right? Because we're not elders, right? Not just your elders, but you, allow it, you, you allowed it to be used. When was the last time? Maybe this morning, maybe this afternoon, maybe a week ago? What I'm saying to you is that these conversations are so necessary. Our young people are being so mistreated that until we educate ourselves at forms just like this, we may not ever get back to a point where we can connect enough to enable a person to hear what we're saying and use that information. I, I remember when I decided to start Sharper Minds Consultants, it was, I'd had one too many conversations with that 13-year-old girl who you know, came in looking like a woman, talking like a woman, acting like a woman, but not really understanding what her power was. I'd had one too many conversations where she had given all of that authority away, right? But I also had one too many conversations with an adult who didn't have a clue either. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So it's time for us to get clues. The information is there. We have to do a lot more to educate ourselves and give a lot of what we're learning back to other people. But I remember I'm sitting in a, in a uh, restaurant, a mommy of four boys. So I'm sitting in a the restaurant. They have to eat, but work still has to be done. So I'm working, and they're eating, and I show something that I'm working on to the waitress. And she's a young girl. She's beautiful. And I know she had to be college age. So I'm showing her, what do you think about it was 
a flyer. What do you think about this flyer? And she saw it, and I'm just thinking, you know, randomly, I just wanted a younger person's opinion. And she read the information of what I was trying to do with Sharper Minds, and she goes, oh, my God, thank you so much. This is so necessary, because she was actually a cutter. And her mom had just recently learned about her cutting herself, but she had been doing it all throughout middle school and high school. And she, in turn, turned out to be a speaker, and it was amazing because of how she looked, how she carried herself, how she presented herself. She was able to connect with a lot of the younger people in the room, but just start having conversations with each other. What's your story? What brings you here? Why, why are you there? Have you thought about this? Start having conversations just like this. When you leave here, Let's follow April's lead and just start having the conversations with each other, and then it can dwindle down to our young people. I'm going to go to Rhonda English next because I really think you said it so beautifully that we're focused on young people a lot of times, but young people are getting their keys from us. And I had the good fortune through my leadership program of going to my sister's place, staying there overnight. I will never be the same. This woman has been affiliated with My Sister's Place Lodge since 1999, yes. doing incredible work with a population of women who are in transition. And I, I want her to kind of unpack what that means. But more importantly, there was such sort of a, there's this, the lodge is a place of hope, let's be clear. The lodge is a place where people go to get it together. But what is happening before they get in that room is startling. And when you start to have conversations with some of the women about their lives and things that have happened to them and how that is translating into the behavior and the decisions that they're making that don't just have an impact on them, but it has impact, an impact on the kids that they unfortunately can no longer take care of because of the situations they're in. So I wanted to really have Rhonda on this panel because I think we all think of oh the woman who's in the house and she may not be with you know the person she had the child with or she may or whatever but there is another population that's a high population in Baltimore if you talk to educators in Baltimore you are hearing more and more and more about women who cannot take care of themselves and therefore cannot take care of their children so that's why I wanted Rhonda to speak so you, you take that anywhere you want it to go First of all, um, I can't say anything without um, giving God the credit and the honor for being here. Second of all, I would like to thank the Power of Beast for allowing me to be here. Third and fourthly, thank you, April, and thank you for the other panel. I'm guests on the panel. I've been working with the population for about 13 years. Um, and to backtrack, Um, I stated that I've been working for the population for about 13 years, but prior to that, I worked here at this institution for over 20 years. And a thought had came to me that um, I wasn't being fulfilled in just dealing with books. So what happened, my sister used to work um, with one of the programs under um, the auspices of Catholic Charities. So she had invited me um, to come over to, to start doing um, workshops to building women's self-esteem. And I was like, no, I can't do this. And then she said, yeah, just come on over. So make a long story short, I started going over to do the workshops. And then it hit me. I said, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be in giving back. Because I could have been one of those women that I serve on a daily basis. Um, first of all, 
when I was in junior high school, I was a rape victim. Not by someone I did not know, but someone I did know. Someone who was in education. Someone who knew better. Um, so there was a fear. Um, once I had been exposed to that and sharing um, with my mom, thinking that it's our fault, we deserve it. But being the type of person that I was and that my mom was very open and receptive, she got, she got me the help that I needed. And all that led to, I think, me really wanting to give back. And um, I have no problem in sharing my story that not only was I raped one time, but I was raped three times. And that's why I can relate to the women and say that I could have been one of them, but there was a strong support system. There was always someone that I could talk to, someone you could have conversations with, where you weren't judged or anything like that. And what I can say that um, not only myself, but my team at the large and truly the organization that I work with, they care. Cherishing divine, they care. Um, I live by that. One thing that I try my best to do and I ask the staff to do is to instill respect. I respect yourselves, respect who we serve, do it with dignity and pride. Carry yourself in a way that you're a role model to these ladies because a lot of them never had it, don't know it, don't know how to express themselves, don't know how to carry themselves. So it is our job and our mission to instill hope into these women that where they came from is not where they have to go back to. Um, we're there to help them, to encourage them, to lead them, to guide them. Is it easy? No, because the same things that you see in the video are the same things that we experience with them where women are at each other. Some of it was catty um, because everyone has a different type of mental illness. You might not know what their mental illness is, but one thing you do have in common is that you do have a mental illness. You were homeless. So we all need to be sensitive to each other's needs. So what we try to do is be that beacon of light to them. Support them. Don't judge them. Get to know them. Listen to their stories. They have some stories where we, sometimes I say, I couldn't have made it. I couldn't have survived some of the tragedies that they've gone through. Um, the loss of a job, um, a child killing him or herself, um, rape victims, just being mm, treated as a lower class citizen. So there where I am, and mind you to say that I, I actually live there. So I'm there 24 seven, so I hear it all the time. But it's a different story. Every day you learn something. So I say we're there to help them, to encourage them, to support them. A lot of them, because of the state that they're in, they can't even deal with life. Um, they're so, some of them are on so much medication that that's what keeps them going. If you take away the medication, you don't know where they'll be. So we have to still be there for them. Um, like I said, it gets stressful sometimes, but the hope that I have is that somebody was there for me when I was at the other end and where I could be right now. 
So I try to also instill in the staff um, to always be positive, to think that it could have been you not to down, because they get that every day. They get it from their family members, they get it from their peers, they get it from each other, they get it from um, programs where they try to go get assistance, they get all of that. So for them to come into where um, I reside as well as work, we try to create an environment that is safe, that's positive, that they can go to one another. A lot of them have bonded there. Uh, they do, they help one another, they encourage one another. And uh, Ms. April had came in under the, one of the programs, the Greater Baltimore Leadership, where they come in and they spend the night and they really see what a woman who has mental illness with, who was formerly homeless, sleeping on a bench, sleeping on bus stops, sleeping in abandoned buildings, rats running all over them, eating out of garbage cans, things that we take for granted. Um, and I see it on a daily basis, and how we just judge them. We look at them because they smell or they stink or they out of their mind, but we don't lend a hand or say, is it something that we can do? So for me, this is what I enjoy. This is what I love. This is what I have a passion about. I'm a mom as well as a grandmother. I have a four-year-old granddaughter, and I let her come down to share, to experience, so she'll know, don't take life for granted. You get a meal every day. We survive off of donations to make sure that our women eat on a daily basis where they can get a nourishing meal, which is better than where they were eating out of trash cans, staying in those abandoned buildings, didn't know where their next meal came from. So for me and what I do, it's not about me. And people always say, how can you do it? How can you, because it's not about me. It's about sacrificing. It's about willing to give up. And not only am I a mom and a grandmother, I'm a wife. So I commend this brother yes. that his wife allows him to go out and do. And I thank God for my husband because he doesn't stop me from being there 24-7 to do the things that I need to do because that's empowerment not for only myself but for my family. Yeah. So all I can say is that um, continue to um, cherish in the divine within. Continue to think about, but what if it was me? Mm. How would I want somebody to treat me? Mm. The phone rings off the hook every day where a woman trying to find somewhere she can live for at least two years to transition back into society to be a productive citizen. So for me, that's, that's what I live for every day, just to help the women. Because, but by the grace of God, it could have been me. Huh. All right, yawn. <laughs> I'm having a yawn moment. That's personal. Um, <laughs> you can see why I asked her to do this panel. I'm thinking and being grateful for your entire community because I'm thinking about our aunt who was in a similar situation and got helped. And so the great thing about so many of the issues that you brought up is that there are people in Baltimore who are working their tails off around these issues 
And um, we're going to be able to expose you to those things more because I think sometimes when you think about this, it is so detached from reality. And it shouldn't have to be somebody you're related to. It should be you're, you're seeking this out and trying to figure out, you know, how to do this. And if that is not a ringing endorsement for you to get your butt on a computer when you go home and find the, the website and make a donation, there, I don't know what is. Um, off, my, off my soapbox now. Um, I'm going to go to Paula. You know, one of the, the things that I, I keep thinking about as we talk through this conversation, it is layered with race, it is layered with class, it is layered with sexual orientation, and all of those things are isms that are systemically in place that we absolutely have to dismantle if we go anywhere with regard to this issue. So for me, I am wondering how in your work, and also with your pedigree, I mean, I think even entering into the space where you take intellectual agency to say that I want to focus on this, create an institute around it, and an institution that's already respected and grounded is amazing. But I think for the public, we don't really get how that functions in a way that we either support or we need to dismantle every day. So a lot of the work that you've done kind of in the legal community has a lot to do with gaining equality for women. So if you could kind of talk a little bit about the translation from the intellectual to everyday folks, that would be great. Um, yeah, and thank you, April, for asking me to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to sort of start with noting that this is the um, 30th anniversary of the ascension of Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme mm. Court. Um, and yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's worthy, of, worthy of note. Um, and, and again, I think Marion Wright Edelman's quote about you can't be what you can't see really resonates with me in, in that regard. Because um, we, we, we do think of ourselves in multiple ways in terms of gender and race and sexual orientation. Um, but I think the common theme there is that symbols matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and that when I watched the film, it struck me over and over and over again that the, um, the, the year she ascended to the bench, there had been no women on the Supreme Court. I was a second-year law student. And it's hard to tell my students today how powerful that was to us, how much it meant, and, and the unlimited possibilities that we felt when we saw that happen. So I think um, it is, you know, we talk a lot about identity politics and about our in different interests, our differences. <laughs> we focus on our differences. But I always have to remind myself that we also have to focus on those things that are common to us and common to us in, in terms of humanity. Um, and I think that uh, that is something that we do try to talk, talk our, with our students about. Um, so the power of symbolism, I think, is really critical for what we do at the law school. Um, in, in the seminar that I teach on um, gender and, and the legal profession and leadership, uh, we really um, focus on the fact that 30 years ago we had the first woman Supreme Court justice. We just had the third one come to the law school. Sonia Sotomayor was at the law school recently. Um, she's amazing, and actually our dean who was here for a while, she just had to leave, Phoebe Haddon, is another amazing woman, a first African-American dean of the University of Maryland's Law School, um, and she brought uh, Justice Sotomayor to us for the convocation, and those things are critical to show our students still. To, to this day, we still have um, very 
low numbers of women in leadership positions in the legal profession. Now we're, we're at 30 percent of Supreme Court, which is terrific, but in private practice, in terms of partners, it's under 20 percent. Uh, obviously, the film showed us that in terms of our political leaders, many of whom were trained as lawyers, it's, it's, uh, it's a tiny, still a tiny proportion of the overall number in Congress. Um, obviously, we haven't um, yet kind of broken barriers at some of the other in executive positions and things like that. So that's what we focus on at the law school. We take the women who come to us who want to really be, um, who use their agency to become lawyers, many to create social change and social justice, uh, and really try to keep them in the fight and keep them persistent because it gets discouraging. The process of legal education can be, for those of you who remember back um, in my generation, the, the movie The Paper Chase, it can grind you down. It can take all of that commitment out of you. Um, and the reasons you came to law school in terms of trying to create uh, social change can be lost. So we try to keep them uh, remembering why they came. Uh, we try to do that. Um, and also what strikes me is we try to tell them uh, about the limits of the law. So in the generation, uh, the movie focused on the women's movement and how um, that was so critical in the 60s, but that we lost the fight on the Equal Rights Amendment, which, which my students don't even know. I mean, they don't even know that the ERA was not ratified and it had been sort of uh, pending. So we do a lot of education about history, which I think is important for students at all ages. So the, the young women who are here today in middle school and high school, college, law school, we really need to refocus on educating our um, students about the history um, of women in the United States. Um, but there are limits to the law. We passed Title IX, which is critical. You heard in the movie the, the, how important that was. Uh, the threat, Condoleezza Rice was talking about the pushback on Title IX. We created Title VII in terms that we created the Equal Pay Act. Those are statutory legal remedies which can get us, uh, which are critical, and can get us um, a long way, but they can only get us so far. Part of the battle and part of the fight, and we try to talk to our students about this, and we bring in history, we bring in political science, we bring in leadership studies, which is a whole discipline and field of its own. Um, to, to really remind them that, yes, they're going to be lawyers and they can be social uh, change agents, but they also have to be aware of culture. And I think the critical piece of that puzzle, and as I sort of do this and done this for 20 years now, is to think about the power of media because it really is distressing to me to see how we are going backwards. The two shows this year that sort of keep getting advertised uh, that are new shows on the major networks are about Pan Am stewardesses in the 60s and Playboy bunnies. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I find that horrifying. I really find it um, really distressing. Uh, and so what happens is that the media reinforces those um, stereotypes or, or social psychologists now call those gender schemas about women. And there are, there's fascinating research about how women are presumed to be um, less competent than men. So that when a, a, a man walks in front of a classroom, the students afford him that expertise. When a woman walks in, the presumption is that she doesn't know what she's talking about, and she has to fight that much harder to establish her authority and mastery over something. And I think that those gender schemas are reinforced daily and, and by these media messages that you saw in the film. 
Um, and that's true across the board. It's true in all the professions. It's true of political leadership. It's true of um, the legal profession. It's true if you talk to your you know, people in other professions, it's the same message. But the culture is essential. So our battle on the statutory and doctrinal front is, is, has gone a long way, although I'd like to bring the ERA back and, and, and ratify it. Um, but we have this generation has a much bigger challenge in some ways, which is to address those intractable stereotypes or schemas about women's competence. Um, and that's in some ways more difficult than passing legislation. And it's, it's harder to pinpoint. And it gets to be, um, again, it, it, the people get worn down in the battle and they get worn down in the fight. And um, m movies like this, documentaries like this, I think are just so important to be able to revitalize it and recharge the conversation um, and get people to refocus on how, how important um, the media is. Um, it's all about power. Right? So when we look at the legal profession, we say, well, women haven't gotten very far in private practice. In part, that's because who controls major law firms? It's the people who bring in business. And what we saw in the movie is it's capitalism, truly, in large part, that's, that's shaping these media messages um, and advertising. And um, I lived in Los Angeles for seven years. My, my children were born at Cedars-Sinai in LA, the home of many of the celebrities, um, people that you saw in, in the movies, um, and a lot of people that you ran across in Los Angeles. A lot of women were involved in the industry. And they, to a person, would talk about how difficult it was to break in writers, producers, directors. Certainly actresses obviously disappear after age 40. You don't see them. So, unless they're on reality shows. Unless they're on reality shows, right? <laughs> Which are even more pernicious in right. some ways. So I think it's about power. Um, and, I, and I really embrace the message of the film, which is that we have to figure out, yes, we have to keep pushing ahead with legislation and enforcing legislation through litigation, through those, but we have to run on a parallel track and we have to figure out how to take the reins of control of the media message and push back. Now, there's, and, I, and as I was watching the film, it occurred to me that, in fact, there are legal mechanisms by which we might be able to do that when you go after the Communications Act and you know if we could get enforcement of some of those rules and we could talk about what taking some of the stuff off television and maybe not reinvent the family hour but be really careful and scrutinize and criticize what's on that television program um, that's going on in front of our children we really could use some of the legal mechanisms um, if we could revitalize them so so there may be uh, ways to do that but it is about creating um, change, but it's about taking back power, or taking power in the case of the media for the first time, right. and getting women in that. So, you know, I think in conclusion, um, those subtle barriers are really our big challenge, and their challenges for our young women here is to recognize those, see them in the media, understand how that message reinforces them, and somehow dismantle it, because it's going to be hard for us to get beyond those glass ceilings uh, if, we, if we can't do that. So, Thank you. Well, there's some good news on the female front. Today, our esteemed Senator Barbara Mikulski will be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Yes. <laughs> Along with the amazing Billie Holiday. Sounds good stuff. Two sisters from Baltimore. And then we have Mary. <laughs> so Mary came here from another city and had the audacity to want to run for office in a city that is known to be like completely insular and all about electing folks who are from here. 
And one of the things I always really respect about Mary is she ran a campaign against some old school, entrenched, beloved politicians um, for whatever the reasons are, be they good or bad. Um, and she ran a campaign that was about her vision for that district and the people in that district. And she lost the first time. But what she managed to do was to give a witness of, I'm committed to being a public servant, and I'm coming back again. And she kept doing it over and over and over again. And honestly, in my opinion, and I'm getting real personal here, in the face of no agreement, because nobody in the city was really operating with this kind of integrity to say, okay, I lost, but I'm not going to call names. Or I'm not going to call names during the election. And, you know, I would like to attribute that to something that you got when you came to Baltimore. <laughs> but maybe it's something that you brought with you. But anyway, a lot of people talked about Mary in that first campaign because of that behavior. And I was like, great, let's make this contagious. So um, in the spirit of full disclosure, I worked on her campaign. Because <laughs> I wanted to see her win. <laughs> and she won. <laughs> but she also, again, gained the respect and the support from folks who had been in office for decades, who worked very hard when they could have just sat on their butts and said, okay, these, you know, what is it, 6,000 people are going to vote for me anyway because that's what it takes. Or was it five, three? It was 8,000. Oh, excuse me, honey, you got your 8,000 votes. <laughs> Which is more than we can say for the last one. Um, but I say all of that because she ran as a smart black woman with a Ph.D. who was openly gay in a conservative northeast Baltimore district. And she won fans, like my mama, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons why I wanted her to be here and after seeing the film was to talk about, in the face of no agreement, how and why did you say, I'm going to enter into this arena, I'm going to do it the way that I did it. Very Shirley Chisholm of you, by the way. <laughs> right? Unbossed and unbossed. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and how do we join you and others in creating that kind of political environment where you can push the envelope and say, you know, I don't like all the stuff that you're doing, but I'm not going to dehumanize you in the process, and I'm going to still open myself up to working with you to make this city or any other city better. Well, um, thank you so much for that. It's, it's a great analysis, and I appreciate that. Because so, a lot of times when you're in something, uh, those of you, or certainly who are activists, or those of you who are elected officials, or you know, you're working day to day, you don't have an opportunity to actually analyze your own experience. So thank you so much, and I'm, I'm really humbled by, by that. Um, I, I guess one of the things is that I just always, I, sort of on the campaign, I blame at them the eldest of six children. Um, and I'm the adult child of a nurse. And so uh, those two things, being the oldest of six kids, I was always having to sort of negotiate situations. Um, but also I was raised by, um, you know, a, a mother who was a nurse who worked every day, and, and, and my father was a respiratory therapist but who also had challenges uh, with uh, mental illness and depression and things like that. So um, while my, my life looked very sort of middle class, it, it didn't operate that way always. Mm. Um, uh, and also, uh, having said that, my dad gave me a book uh, when I was in sixth grade that was, because he had gone back to school, that was about the natural superiority of women. Mm. And he actually gave that to me. And I was, I was yes, you know, 
I think Barack Obama has helped make nerds a little more cool. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know, I was. And so I certainly had a father and parents and, uh, and certainly a mother and, and people who, who supported, uh, frankly, anything I did. And I, I also felt that uh, those of us who are in positions of power and often, you know, being a woman, being African-American, um, same gender-loving, lesbian, um, you know, middle to low, middle, low, lower class, you don't often imagine yourself as ever possibly being in a position of power, but we, but we are. So regardless of where I am, um, you know, I think it's an obligation to help those who, who aren't in that position. So um, I'm, I guess, deciding to run. I, I couldn't imagine running any other way. Um, I don't like to make, I don't think it's useful to make enemies. I don't think it's, um, I, I also think you can be vigorously opposed uh, to something. You can absolutely um, despise what someone uh, is doing, but you don't necessarily have to despise that person. And in fact, I think that that's, uh, that um, when I've done that, I can't say that I haven't, um, I found that it drained me in a way where I should use that energy, you know, to, to, to win. Um, and, and so I want to make a sort of a segue into the issue around many of us being told that, you know, your African-American experience is what's most important. Mm. And then you, you sort of saw that, wow, now I'm seeing that being a woman is this really important. The same thing. So what should happen, not that there is a competition, mm. the black oppression is better, you know, gays and lesbians are, get, are, are more oppressed, or the transgender community within the gay and lesbian community is more oppressed, or women. The fact of the matter is, is that we are all <laughs> operating in a system that is not, reaffir- is not affirming. And so to engage in or try to win the oppression Olympics yeah. doesn't get any of us anywhere. Right. They really don't. I want to know what that is. What's the prize? Right, right. The only prize is that you're actually helping everyone who's not a part of that group win. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I, I uh, went to my brother. I was trying to get the, the year. I went with my brother, I think it's 1994, 95, to the Million Man March. I wasn't sure that I could go, but I, I wanted to go, and I wanted to go with my brother. Um, and I believe, again, I'm getting older, so sometimes my memories of when I hear things, it gets a little shady. Um, but I, I remember um, um, one of the speakers, and I believe it was Farrakhan, talking about um, that, you know, so many of us are in this ditch, and we're both in the ditch. And, we, you know, we're fight- you, I've got my hand on your neck, and you're fighting, but we're all in the ditch, uh. right? So I think that that's some of when we're looking at this film... Um, and really trying to choose very smart, intelligent women and men to make a choice that politically we, can't, we don't have to make those choices and that, we sh- that, that it's a lie. And anybody that's trying to make you choose you know, your womanness over your, 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 your color or your, how you identify sexually or even politically, whether you're a socialist or you know, social, capital, social capitalism, whatever it is, those are all sort of uh, fake oppositions. So that's the, the, the biggest thing. Um, and again, just you know, running. I, in fact, I, I never actually planned on being an elected official. Um, I, I 
I was a professor for a while. Uh, I was a bean counter for a while. Um, I, uh, so I, I was a, a bureaucrat, so I love bureaucrats. I, I know where you come from. Um, I, I was a sociologist, a demographic consultant. Um, I drove a pizza truck. <laughs> um, you know, um, and, and sometimes I've had some of these jobs at the same time. Um, so I think more of us, frankly, I would like to see, I guess, more of us See elected life as a term of service. See it as something that maybe you were doing, maybe you were an educator for 20 years, and you know, maybe I can do this job for eight years. Maybe you're, you know, you're, 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 you're working a, as the head of a women's shelter, and you know, maybe you should, you should do that. Um, I, I just see that knowing that you can do something else and having a range of experiences, I actually believe, I hope, will make me a, a better elected official, official, but just like more women being in the room will make politics better. Um, I just want to point out that, or reinforce that, uh, yes, nationally we're at a a point in uh, our government where we have fewer elected women officials than ever. And even in our city, in the House of Delegates, our our, our, um, our representation of women in the House of Delegates uh, has decreased significantly um, over the last couple of years. And and yet, um, when we look to, I, I, I went out, I was doing some research before this, and, and one of the key reasons why women don't run for office is that they've never been asked. How many 21-year-old men are asked to run, and they run? They don't think about, do I have any experience? It's not against 20 years. I mean, it's just an example. Do I have any experience? No. i got all the experience I need, right? Um, and, and other people will say that. But a woman, and we tend to be older, too, a woman who has done so much, you've, if you've managed, you know, managed a household, managed multiple jobs, managed working in all-male environments, moving up, that is the House of Delegates, let me just tell you right there. And <laughs> And you have that experience, and yet we, we question ourselves. We say, I can't do that. Um, yet you, you have to do that. Um, and the, the other thing is that being a, an a elected official, if you are a woman, it's like there, you have to be certain kinds of things. I mean, you mentioned the, um, being from Baltimore City. Actually, one of the people that was running you know, in the group of six tried to make it an issue that I wasn't born here. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of my one of the other candidates said, uh, asked in a room of senior citizens, you know, how many of them were born in Virginia? A lot of people raised their hand. <laughs> how many people were born in North Carolina? They, you know, and you know, so it got away from that. And but then I also said, you know, I choose this city. I'm an adopted child. Are you going to tell me that your children that were born of you love you less than the ones you adopted? Mm. And I was like, oh, thank goodness, I figured that out. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, there are a lot of us who move to Baltimore City, who choose this, who really should not allow us to, ourselves to be um, pushed to the side because we didn't go to Western or we didn't go to St. Paul School for Girls or we didn't go to University of Maryland Law School because that seems to be where everybody is. And again, these are my friends. I support that. But don't listen to people that tell you you can't win because of this. Mm. Um, and there's lots and lots to say. Uh, but I guess that, 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 that one other thing about um, being a woman candidate that there is, um, we've mentioned another time, you so, say, the first thing they tend to say is whether she, you're married. So you, you can be a woman candidate, but you've got to be married. You've got to have kids. Someone even actually, this happened, again, in, during the course of my election, said, how could I vote for support 
uh, Baltimore City Schools because I didn't have children in the schools. I mean, that's a, that person honest was asking that as a real question. And I said, well, that, I mean, can I get all my taxes back that I've been paying? Because, you know, but I don't believe that. I mean, I believe that, it, that that's my part. Um, and so you always see um, women having to list their marital status and how many kids. I don't do it. Right. Um, I don't do it. I don't do it because I'm ashamed of who I am. I have a partner. I, I you know, I've been um, gay since I was 14. Um, I experimented a little in college, but I got over it. Um, but, uh, you know, other, other than that, you know, I'm not ashamed of, of who I am. Um, but it's really because, you know, that's none of your business. And it doesn't really have anything to do with my job. But women constantly have to say, I'm an elected official, and I take care of the kids, and I can do this. You don't, you don't have to do that, so. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Now, you were saying that I remember the last three awards that I was nominated for, and it was the same form over and over again. I'm like, don't you have this on file somewhere? Can't we just substitute it? They always ask you, how old are you? Are you single, and do you have kids? And I'm like, well, no, I'm not married. I have no kids. So, yeah, it, it's really interesting. As I go to Byron, God bless your soul. <laughs> Um, I was thinking about uh, when I worked at the NAACP and I was having some issues and my boss pulled me in the office and he said, you're basically going to have to man up. I was like, oh, okay. So I couldn't be, I couldn't figure out a way to lead as a woman that would have been supported in that environment. You know what I mean? Because at the time he was a president and he ran the game. Um, so part of this whole conversation, Byron, is shifting back to you as the person I asked to be the male voice on this panel, because I know about your work and your commitment, you have really taken this on personally and publicly in a very strong way um, within the hip-hop community, which is a whole lot of stuff, <laughs> right, to say the least. The thing that I love about your witness is that it's consistent, it's persistent, it's loving, it's respectful. And the people who are in that arena respect you because the way you communicate, again, like Mary, is with a sense of love. You're like trying to push people to get to understand. And earlier we were talking about how a lot of hip-hop artists, they will have the most salacious, crazy lyrics and there'll be this one song in their album. And it's like, oh my God, that was brilliant. So what is the example of that right now? Little Wayne, How to Love. Little Wayne's love song. Yeah, supposed love song, right. <laughs> so, and then I talked to him a little bit about Chris Brown, because Chris Brown, we all know, had um, issues with anger and issues with violence against women, namely Rihanna. Um, I was at a fight party with my dad at my stepsister's house, and we got into this really incredible verbal argument about Chris Brown being the person who sang, <laughs> you know, that the national anthem at a boxing match. It was like... A month. It was less than a month after this woman. I was like, okay, what is going on with his management, the people who are handling them? You and Kevin Powell and so many other <coughs> men, especially black men, have really been trying to take this on and honestly, you know, unpacking your stuff. Everybody in this room can get called out on everything in that phone. In some way, we are co-signing it. Mm -hmm. By omission or commission, we're co-signing it. So, you know, I want to be able to believe that we live in a world where the transformation for somebody like Chris Brown is really possible, right? That beautiful people didn't just come out of nowhere and that there's a seed in him that he knows better. And that, so how do we create a community where men can feel comfortable 
starting to have that conversation amongst themselves because a part of the Million Man March power was we need a call to arms for ourselves before we can even interact with you. I know a lot of us dipped up in there, <laughs> you know, but it, I thought it was a powerful stand. Mm -hmm. But then to kind of take off the mask a little bit and be open enough and vulnerable enough to be in communication as you are consistently with women about these issues as well. Well, um, as the sole male on the panel, um, I hope to represent um, for all the men in the room um, and all of the men who are not here. Um, I, I consider it to be a real privilege and honor to be on this panel and to be a part of this event. I think this is a great community event. Um, and I really wish that more people were here because this, this issue, the, the issues that we're talking about are so important and so relevant to everyone, not just women, but, but to men as well, to boys and to girls, to men and to women. And so um, it's unfortunate that more people are not exposed to these kind of conversations because they're critical conversations to have. Um, but the people that are in the room are, in my opinion, a large part of the solution Absolutely. to many of these problems because the people who are in this room are here because you chose to be here, because you want to be here, because you're concerned about these issues. So I just want to commend you, you for your leadership you. and your passion and your organization ability um, to, to, to make this happen and to get so many um, incredible panelists here in the same room. Um, there's so much to say yes. about, about what you're asking me to respond to, but I'll try and be as um, concise and brief as humanly possible. Um, I, I'd like to talk both from the perspective of a filmmaker and from the perspective of an activist. Um, this film, I think, is one of the most important films, documentary films, that I've ever seen. Um, I watch documentary films nearly every day. Uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker by profession. I study my craft. This film is an incredible combination of personal story, indisputable statistics, and personal anecdotes that speak truth to power about the, the real lived experience, experiences of girls and women across the world. And I think that we have to hear those voices. I think that uh, one of the things that I have seen based on my experience over the years working with men, boys and men, and I've had the unique opportunity to be in the room with thousands and thousands and thousands of boys and men talking to them, engaging in conversation about masculinity, the construction of masculinity, sexism, violence against girls and women, and what we as men can, be a part, can do to be a part of the solution. One of the things that or three things that come up consistently almost everywhere I go, and I, and I travel extensively, and I speak and I engage men on a, on a regular basis, is that there is a tremendously high level of deflection, denial, and resistance. Deflection, denial, and resistance. Most of the time when we watch films like this, or when we get called out about our sexism or about our patriarchy, or about our um, abusive behavior toward girls and women, the first reaction is to deflect. Is to say, this, this is not our issue, this is their issue. And that they have to deal with these issues. And what that deflection essentially does is it marginalizes the experiences of girls and women, and it also um, prevents you from being introspective about your own behavior, your own attitudes, 
and about your own way of life. And, you know, they prevent you from, from actually taking action to change yourself, to do something to become a part of the solution, right? Uh, and then the denial is also a part of that. The denial, um, again, prevents you from taking a hard look at yourself. And then the resistance is just, is just a posturing that takes right. place um, that feeds into everything else, right. the denial and the deflection. And so I think it's really important to come up with strategies and ways to effectively reach uh, boys and men, as well as girls and women, in a way in which men listen. Yes. We hear what we just saw, and we digest it in a way in which we can personalize it so that it's not just a bunch of um, women who are blaming men <coughs> for their problems or blaming the media for their problems, but, a way in, but in a way in which we can look at ourselves and say, okay, what can I do besides being sorry, right, or besides being embarrassed to counteract these representations? Yes. What is it that I can do? Right. What is it that I can say to a young boy or to my male friend who has some problematic ideas or attitudes about girls and women? What is it about myself that I need to challenge about my own attitudes and about my own behaviors that are not necessarily progressive or well thought out or intelligent or that makes sense? How can I identify with the experiences of women that make sense to me? as a person from a marginalized group, because I speak with a lot of young men of color um, who obviously feel racism, they feel oppression, they feel <coughs> the judgment and the stereotypes and all those different things, but don't necessarily make the connection to the same sort of experiences that girls and women also face. They may be different, but they still, they still feel the same level of, of, um, of, uh, of oppression and marginalization, et cetera, et cetera. We have to begin to see the connection between our experiences, and that's something that, that you mentioned and a couple of other people on the panel mentioned. So it's very, very difficult work, but the only way it's going to happen is through massive education, mm -hmm. media literacy, which mm -hmm. is what, what I believe that this film sets out to do and what you are setting out to do by having this, um, this conversation. And we just have to begin to really do the work of engaging people to think critically about um, the level of uh, highly sexualized images and representations and just the marginalization of girls and women in media. I mean, I, and, and, that, and it's that simple. We have to educate. Um, one of the things that I try to do as a filmmaker who is a member of the media is to create work that counteracts the myriad images that we see in mainstream media on a daily basis. So I try to use my skills and my skill set as a filmmaker to um, invade the culture with an alternative uh -huh. perspective when it comes to gender issues. Uh -huh. Because what, what is dominating in the mainstream media has a huge impact and there has to be something that counteracts those representations, that deconstructs those representations in a way that makes sense to the viewer, that, makes, that, that helps the viewer connect the dots and transforms the viewer. So that's one, that's one thing that I can do actively to use my power and to use my status and use my skills to be a part of the solution. The other thing that I, 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 um, that I do as an activist is to use my status and to use uh, my platform as a male to speak out against 
sexism and all forms of violence against women as often as possible wherever I have to speak out against it. Because I think um, boys and men lack male figures who are courageous enough to speak up publicly against violence against women and all forms of sexism. So we need to have more models so this young, this young man who's 14 years old can see men who are, who are unafraid of speaking up in support of <coughs> women's issues and speaking up in defense of his, their mothers, their sisters, their daughters, their grandmothers, their aunts, and their female friends. So I think that's critical. And I think the more that young men see that, the more space they will feel to do the same thing. I think that's really important. And then the last thing um, that, I, that I actively try to do is to reach as many men as humanly possible and to challenge men, to inspire men, to encourage men to change their notions about what it means to be male, to step outside of the confines of a limited notion of masculinity that says that in order to be a man, you have to be strong, you have to be in charge, you have to have a lot of women, you have to dominate, you have to feel superior to girls and women, you have to be on top, you have to have all of the trappings that come along um, with masculinity as defined by a system of patriarchy that keeps all of this, all this stuff that we just saw in this film running smoothly like a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. So we have to begin to break all of those things down for men, adult men, and young boys so that we can begin to redefine masculinity. Now, the last thing I want to say is that some of the most powerful statistics that I saw in this film were connected to um, the dearth of numbers of women in positions of power in the media. And in my opinion, that says it all. Yes. You can use those same, you can, I'm, probably, I'm sure that if, if we did some, some research today, we could probably see a parallel between the uh, number of African Americans in positions of power in the media, uh, the number of gay men and women, openly gay men and women in positions of power in the media, and other people who are, are considered to be marginalized people, Latinos, you know, other marginalized groups. Therein lies the problem, in my opinion, because if you do not have conscious and aware people who are in positions of power and authority within the machine yes. of media, then no one is going to be there to challenge some of these reduced images of femininity, the reduced images of African-American, African-Americans, the reduced images of gays, the reduced images of Latinos, and the other. So it is, it's, 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 it's incredibly important that we raise those numbers, and I agree, we do need alternative media. We, we need alternative media that challenges what we've seen, but it has to be done in a progressive way. We do have a BET, but unfortunately, BET is responsible for reproducing racism just as much as white-owned, you know, uh, media conglomerates, okay? Misogyny and stereotypical images of black people in general and black men. So it's not about having alternative media. It's about having alternative media with individuals within that media structure who are smart, progressive, political, and unafraid to present an alternative vision yes. that counteracts these stereotypical images that we see.
You know, and that's everything that you all said. I'm listening to it, and I'm living my life. And that is some hard work. I just want you all to sit with that for a minute because everybody on this stage and really everybody in this room, in some way, shape, or form, we are engaged in that hard work. And it's exhausting. It's depressing sometimes. Right? And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to open it up for questions, but I think what I want to hear from you in addition to the questions that you might have is, what are you willing to do? What in your sphere of influence, whatever it may be, your siblings, your cousin, your mama, your daddy, you know, the guy you might be seeing, the woman you might be seeing, your corporations, your institutions, are you willing to say the thing that makes people uncomfortable because it is the right thing to do? One of the things that I've learned, which I think is equally as, um, as, as dangerous and problematic as men who, who are sexist, who have sexist ideas and attitudes, are women who mm-hmm. mouth pat- patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like women who, if you, if you close your eyes, um, think it's a, a man talking. You know, and that and that just goes how goes, goes to show exactly mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. how powerful and how successful patriarchy has been. Now, this is all stuff that I've had to learn as a male, right? And this all comes out of years of experience. And I did not come out of the womb thinking this way. Right. You know, I was very much a typical man in, in many ways as well. But it's important for you to continue that work. And I think about um, uh, the book Black Feminist Thought. Mm-hmm. You know, when I read that book. No, it's not no, Michelle. Bell Hooks. No, no, it's now not Bell Hooks. You know you know it's, Bell Hooks. No, no, it's, it's, Patricia no, it's, Bell Hooks. Hooks. It's, it's Patricia Hill Collins. It's Patricia Hill Collins. Not oh, Bell Black Feminist Thought. You yeah, said. Black oh, okay. Feminist Thought. Critical. Yeah. One of the things yeah. that she said, I think, in the early, in, in the introduction of that book, was that there was, there was not going to be any discussion about the plight of black men in the book. Right. That the book was she going to be up. solely focused on the um, experiences uh, of African American girls and women. Right. And by doing that, she, she felt that she would be focusing on women and forcing people to focus on the experiences of women because women's experiences have been so marginalized. And also, for men, men are so... It's almost like you know when people see some of my films and they don't see a lot of white people in, their, in, in the films, they get upset because they feel like, well, where are the white people? Like, you know, because we're so used to seeing films where there are hardly any African-Americans in the films. Um, and people feel like there's some bias there. But I think it's important for men to, to be forced to read the experience of girls and women um, because that's the only way that you're going to be, that's, that's the only way you're going, to read, you're going to read and learn about some of the historical figures that you talked about. That's real. I'm getting, I'm getting a look from Judy that we have to wrap this up, but I'm going to let everybody have their parting word. But before that happens, I need you to know two things. These people volunteered their time. They did not get paid. Byron really gets paid. And he came here out of love. And his anniversary was what, last night? He came after his anniversary. So I gotta send the wife something. (laughs) But I just want you to, to, to know that part of what makes Civic Frame work is that I have people who really love me and respect what I'm trying to do. They know my struggles and they show up. It includes these people on the stage, but it includes you and the other folks who had to leave and other people who are supporting this work. I need you to know that these are tough times. The money is not there. This program, when it said it's free, it's free. 
I didn't get paid for this program, but I did it because it needed to be done. So I want you all to know that these folks are going to reveal to you some of the things that they're doing. If you believe in this work and you want to see it and you want to see it continue, you have to support it because we've got to eat, like for real, for real. So I want, I want you to get that, but I also want all of these people here to share with you, you know, their parting thoughts. If you have something that you're doing that you think people need to go to, be invited to, share that as well, and then we have to wrap up so folks at the library can go home. Well, I just, I just want to, again, thanks. I understand. Thanks to the Enoch Pratt Library for doing this. And just for my part, I always support and vote for funding, for, to continued funding for libraries. Um, so I just want to, so for Zora Neale Hurston, uh, I'm just going to leave something, because she's, if you haven't read her, um, she uh, really is, can, is anthropologist. Um, we typically think of her as a, as a writer, but uh, she has some great words. And, and for this, I'm just going to leave this quote. Um, she says, I am not tragi- tragically colored, or insert, or woman. There is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul, nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my yeah. oyster knife. And for each of you, I think that's what we need to do, is the call to action is to, yeah, own the sorrow, own the anger, but sharpen our oyster knives to grab that thing that, yes. that we know is precious for all of us. Mm. So. Beautiful. Okay. Oh, and um, quickly, there's this thing called the Lockhart Principle, and that means every time you come in contact, step in a room, touch a wall, you leave a little piece of you. I'm encouraging you guys to make your piece be very, very positive. Um, we host an annual symposium every year where you bring together law enforcement, attorneys, parents, and teens in April. But October marks Teen Dating Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We chose this month to host our biggest fundraiser. At our fundraiser, we're going to be honoring people just like yourselves. If you know of someone who should be honored, go to our website, nominate them. If you can come out and hang out with us, support the fundraiser. Come out and hang out with us. And just let let your mark be positive. I just wanted to say thank you again to April and to to all of you for being here. Um, It it has been inspirational. And to share with you, um, when Woodrow Wilson was finally persuaded to support um, the passage of the 19th Amendment, the right to vote for women, he, he basically sort of said to Congress, if we fail to allow women to vote and to participate in our democracy, we will only be half wise. And I think that that is a a thought that I'd like to leave you with and to uh, say thank you to those of you in education who are doing this work and send us your students uh, when it's time to come to law school. I'm fired up, and I hope that you all are fired up too, and I hope that everyone leaves this room feeling empowered and not overwhelmed, but feeling like there's something that you can do on an individual basis to be a part of the solution. And I have a two-year-old daughter, and I want to create a world that's, um, that's better for her and, and so that she has the space to be free. Um, and so we all have women in our lives, both men and women in this room have women in our lives who we love, care about, know, and, and, and understand um, that they should be um, taken care of. So um, please feel empowered and do whatever you can today to be a part of the solution. Thank you. I want to go back to the word ownership. I think that uh, we, we all are, are in debt to, to, to our girls. And um, 
to pay that debt if you don't want to give uh, money or you can't give money at the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women, you can give time. Come have lunch with a girl. Come volunteer with a girl. Come to a, a student-led conference where the girls have to talk about their learning and, and talk about their, um, their, their, their goals that they set for themselves. And they don't have parents that show up. Um, and so we have adults that come and sit in, the, in that place and fill that gap. So I invite you to be a part of the solution that way um, by sort of paying back that debt because uh, we all have to own some of the stuff we saw in the documentary. I just want to say thank you to April and to each and every one of you who are here this evening. And just to say that um, my sister's place large, if you had the opportunity, if you desire to come by for a visit, for a tour, just give me a call. Feel free. I'm there 24-7. Yes, if you need to come on the weekend, I'm very flexible. But I just want to say that just stop by just to see what's going on, because um, one day it could be you. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. I'm going to you have something to say very quickly. Thank you guys so much for being here again. Support the